Welcome to Bouncing Forward. I'm Amy Purdy. I believe that our challenges give us the opportunity to live an even greater life with more meaning and purpose. Through my own experience of losing my legs at 19 years old and going on to become a professional athlete, New York Times bestselling author, and world-renowned motivational speaker, I've learned that overcoming our obstacles has nothing to do with bouncing back. It has everything to do with bouncing forward. That's why on this podcast, I'm sharing stories of resilience, setbacks, and remarkable comebacks. Your journey to bouncing forward starts here. Thank you so much, Dr. Aditi, for being here with us today. I am so excited to talk to you um, and just just chat about all types of different things because you cover a lot of different topics. I've heard you speak on Clubhouse. I've heard you talk about stress management. I've heard you talk about resilience. And this is all stuff that you study, you research, you teach, and you speak about. And we really have not covered stress management on Bouncing Forward. And yet stress management is huge for resilience and to be able to bounce forward in our lives. And so my first question for you, is there a difference between good stress and bad stress? And the reason I ask is being a professional athlete and also doing Dancing with the Stars and and being a motivational speaker. And, you know, sometimes I'll be like a TV host or something. I'm always running on adrenaline. I'm always running on like kind of this fight or flight pressure stress. And I'm like, okay, well, is this good stress or is this bad stress? I don't really know if it's a good thing or not. I love that question, Amy. (laughs) And first, just thank you for letting me be here and talk to you. We were speaking earlier and you're such a hero to me and so many others. And, you know, this is such an important distinction because there is a difference between good stress and bad stress. But we always just think of stress as the bad guy. But Mm -hmm. in fact, stress can be adaptive. That means good. That's a scientific term for good. So stress gets up gets us up out of bed in the morning, gets us motivated to do things, wins us Olympic medals in your case, right. and gets us very motivated to do good in the world and be project-driven and goal-oriented. That is adaptive stress and positive stress. But stress can also go askew and become maladaptive stress. So that's when we have palpitations, difficulty sleeping at night, maybe difficulty or anger in interpersonal relationships, anxiety and depression, those sorts of things. When it starts interfering with our daily life, interfering with our relationships, our productivity, our health and well-being, that's when it becomes maladaptive. But a little bit of stress is actually a very good thing. When we think about stress, we think about a bell-shaped curve. So -hmm. there is a sweet spot right in the middle where it is adaptive and a wonderful thing. And when it's too little and we have too little stress in our lives, we're unmotivated, we're not productive, we're bored. It's not the optimum well-being. Likewise, if we have too much stress, like we're anxious or, you know, overworked or burnt out, like many of us are right now in the midst of this very long marathon Mm. of a pandemic, we're equally not motivated, burnt out, and just not productive. So there is that healthy cushion of a middle ground, which very few of us are are at right now in the midst of this really difficult and challenging time. So I was going to ask, and you kind of just answered it how to know if the stress you're feeling or like the tension that you're feeling is positive or if it's negative. And what you're really saying is it really is, it's how it's checking in with yourself, right. And and how you feel like heart palpitations or overwhelm or anxiety. So is that, is that the way that we decide, okay, what I'm feeling right now is actually healthy for me versus not healthy. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a difference between acute stress Mm -hmm. and chronic stress. Mm -hmm. So before we get on stage or before we perform, you in the sports arena, you know, me when I do my media stuff or if and you when you do media stuff, before we perform in any capacity, and we're all performers, right? We all get up and go to work. Everyone's on Zoom these days for work. We're performing all the time. So if you are having some, you know, butterflies in your stomach or heart racing, these are all normal reactions and they're an acute process 
during the stress response. And that's okay if it's manageable. If it becomes, you know, difficult for you to concentrate or focus during those times, that's a different story. But for most people, they can manage those emotions. They have the the performance, whatever it may be, the interaction, and then it's over. The interaction is over and those feelings dissipate. So that's an acute stress response. It's your adrenaline coursing through your body and it helps you kind of focus and perform and produce and excel at the moment. So that is, okay. oh, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, okay. So what does chronic stress look like? And yes. feel like that's exactly, so that is acute and that's okay. If acute stress happens too often though, it kind of can bleed into chronic stress. And chronic stress is that like low grade or medium grade feeling of doom and gloom. Maybe instead of butterflies in your stomach, you're having abdominal pain or some sort of like, you know, deeper, more longstanding issue, palpitations on a regular basis, feeling anxious, uneasy, unwell, and feelings of panic, maybe having difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating, either very sluggish or too active, like a hyperactive personality. So there's many tells and we're all very different. You know, some people, when they feel stressed or if they're feeling burnt out from chronic stress, they may feel like they can't focus at work. Another manifestation of chronic stress and or burnout could be the inability to unplug from work. So both things could be happening and it depends on the type of person. So you kind of have to know what your baseline is and know how you are when you are feeling good and healthy and whole and happy and then see how different it is from your norm to really know whether you are having acute or chronic stress, chances are right now during the pandemic, Amy, we're all under some form of chronic stress. Some right. Yeah. I mean, I, even just, you know, something that I've never really experienced before, but that I've been experiencing through this pandemic is kind of waking up and suddenly going like, what am I going to do? What's next? I've been used to in the past, kind of always knowing what's next, you know, As a Paralympian, you know, every four years you're going to the Olympic Games, or at least that's what you're working towards. You know what your next four years looks like. Um, Or, you know, speaking, you know what your calendar looks like. But this year, when everything's just wide open, you know, there's, there's a bit of a freeing feeling to it, but then there's also a fear of what's next. And so I'd imagine that's got to be a level of chronic stress, a level of anxiety like you're talking about that we're all probably dealing with a little bit right now. Yeah. I mean, you said it so well. It's the chronic stress. It's that anticipatory anxiety. It's the lack of control. The pandemic has made us feel very unsure about lots of things, how things are in the now, how things are going to be in the future. And it makes us feel a lack of control. And we as human beings really crave control. We crave a sense of purpose and meaning and really understanding the borders of whatever we're working on. And right now things are very loose. There's no structure. There are no borders. We don't know when this is gonna end and how long are we gonna be in this? That is a very difficult thing to cope with. If we knew that it's going to be you know, three months and we can do this, you can psychologically prep yourself for that. Right. The Olympics, you know, it's every four years, you know what to expect. But when you don't have these sorts of timelines or deadlines, and it's very free flowing, it's really difficult on the system, psychologically, physically, emotionally, in all realms. And I know you suggest um, the idea of of trying to of trying to create a growth mindset over a scarcity mindset. Um, and that's something that I've talked about a little bit as well, but I'm curious, how would you describe that and, and how do you do that? Yeah, wonderful question. Pandemics create a scarcity mindset because it is our self-preservation mechanism on overdrive. We are fearful for our life, We are fearful for our family's life. We feel unsafe. When we feel all of these things, our amygdala and our limbic system in our brain, the emotional center of our brain, starts sending red alerts to our body because we don't know what's going on and we can't anticipate, you know, that. So we are really in that state of fight or flight and self-preservation. We want to move out of this scarcity mindset. It is also what makes us, you know, panic and doom scroll and buy large amounts of toilet paper, you know, that (laughs) sense of panic and like, 
what is tomorrow going to be? So how do we move from that sense of scarcity to abundance? And the abundance mindset is very similar to the growth mindset in some ways. The growth mindset believes that challenges, difficulties, adversities are actually growth experiences. They can help us become stronger, wiser, and more adaptable. You are an expert at the growth mindset. I feel like your story and your lessons and your wisdom are the true embodiment of the growth mindset. You've had various difficulties in your life and you've overcome them and you've found great purpose and meaning in them for yourself. And you're also sharing them with other people and bringing so much light and wisdom to others too. So you are truly the embodiment of the growth mindset and we should all learn some of those tips and tricks from you. And the growth mindset is really, you know, when we think about resilience and how do we build resilience, even during the pandemic, the growth mindset is really where resilience is built. So if we can, during these really challenging times during the pandemic, if we can think about how to bring some meaning and purpose through these difficult experiences for ourselves, for our families, you know, what has this pandemic taught us? Are there any silver linings? You speak about this a lot. I feel like every time I speak to you, you are always doing cognitive reframing. So I don't know if you know, if you are aware of it, but you're doing it all the time. You know, when you're talking about some adversity in your life, you'll say, this happened, but you know what it taught me was, and then right. you go the, the lessons and the wisdom that you've learned from it. And that is truly the growth mindset. And you're just, you are an expert in the growth mindset more than anyone else, I think. Well, gosh, well, thank you for that. And I'll tell you, I just recently um, realized like I am the queen of reframing. Like that is what I do. I reframe every situation, but I, I've trained myself to do that. And I think that's something that's important for everybody to know is, you know, for me, I've never been this crazy positive person, to be honest. I'm not like an overly positive person where everything's good and you don't have to worry about things. I feel like I have dealt with, of course, the depths of despair and all of the stuff with my leg and the injuries that I've faced. But at the same time, I, um, I really try to look at the big picture, just like you said, and step away from what's right in front of me and what it appears to look like and, and look at, you know, my life as a whole, or look at the world as a whole and kind of where I fit into it. And I always think, what can I do with this? What can I do with this? So, you know, the pandemic, exactly. Like this year, I'm like, I'm taking singing lessons and I'm learning to move my business online. And, you know, and I think so much of us are doing that. I think we're actually more resilient than we even know. And I think this pandemic has probably showed us just how resilient we all really are. Yeah, truly, you know, resilience is something that has often gotten a bad rap in the times of the pandemic because people think resilience is like chin up, mind over matter, you're going through right. difficult times, but just like bounce back. That's not truly what resilience is in the scientific realm. Resilience is our innate biological ability to adapt, recover, and grow in the face of life's challenges. And without stress, there can be no resilience. So we, so I like to say that stress may be the great equalizer, but resilience is a universal antidote. And resilience is the growth mindset. And that is really where so much of our strength comes from. And resilience is innate. We all have it. You know, right now, people have asked me, a lot of people ask me this question almost every day. I feel so burnt out. I'm not resilient. I feel burnt out. Right. And that's a really important distinction to think about. Resilience and burnout aren't mutually exclusive. You can be an incredibly resilient person and still be burnt out. And that is because resilience is an innate individual trait. It is almost like our birthright mm -hmm. versus burnout is more of an external state imposed upon us by systems like, you know, for example, right now, working from home, the childcare system, so many of the parents who are struggling, so many frontline healthcare workers who are struggling. So there's lots of systems in our, in our society that really burden us. And that is what creates burnout and, mm -hmm. you know, the individual burnout. But we can very much be resilient internally and continue to be resilient even if we're burnt out, they're not mutually exclusive. And I know that you talk about the mind-body connection and also the gut-brain connection. So what does that have to do with resilience and how can we build our resilience by, by what we eat? 
I love this question. So the mind-body connection is always in action. And you, to me, are a real personification of the mind-body connection, right? It's like getting out of your head and into your body, finding Mm -hmm. that strength in your body and the connection. So when you do better, so if you move and exercise, if you rest and sleep, you feel better. And we have the mind-body connection all day, every day. Just some of us are more aware of it than others, but we can all kind of consciously create a healthier and stronger mind-body connection. As far as the gut-brain connection goes, that is just another form or another variation of the mind-body connection. And when we think about the gut-brain connection, that there is an ecosystem of healthy bacteria in the gut called the microbiome. And these are healthy bacteria, they live in our guts, and they help regulate our, all sorts of things like mood and immunity and stress and resilience. And in fact, most recently, just May of 2020, there was a new entity discovered. It's really cutting edge research and it's called the psychobiome. And what that is, is bacteria in the gut, healthy bacteria in the gut, that their sole role is to manage mood, stress, and resilience. Wow. So the psychobiome, it's very interesting and very new and an emerging science. And so there's lots of ways to help strengthen and support the microbiome and the psychobiome. And so some very simple ways is to protect our sleep. Sleep is really important for the gut-brain connection, for immunity, for lots of things, emotional processing, especially now during difficult times. Another way, you know, the question that you asked, are there things that we can eat to strengthen our gut-brain connection? Right. Absolutely. Staying well hydrated, aiming for a plant-based fruit and vegetable diet. Lots of fruits and vegetables can help strengthen our gut-brain connection because it helps strengthen our microbiome and our psychobiome. And eating some probiotic foods, so, you know, a forkful of sauerkraut every day, Mm -hmm. some yogurt kimchi, kombucha, there's so many foods that are fermented foods that help us in terms of strengthening that gut bacteria. In turn, it can actually impact our mood, impact our stress levels, our sleep, and our resilience. My, uh, My husband has recently gone through some anxiety spells. And what's really interesting is it hasn't been brought on really, he doesn't notice it at first mentally, um, or he doesn't really even notice it really in his body and in being anxious, he notices it in his stomach. And it's really interesting because it, it's like, it shut, it shuts his stomach off completely. He'll start to feel sick to his stomach. And then all of a sudden he's in kind of this, this state of anxiety. And so you know, I was thinking, is it, is it the anxiety that's shutting his stomach down? But now that you're talking about this, the psychobiome, or is it the stomach, right? That's then creating a, a shift in your mood. And that's, what's creating the anxiety. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm choking over here, but, um, but I'll just say that again, just that. Yeah. So is it the, is it the, the, is it your brain that's shutting your stomach down or is it your stomach that could actually be shutting your brain down? I love this question. You know, the gut, what I would say is it's your brain, the brain in our heads. And it's also our brain because our gut is our second brain. We have three to five times more serotonin receptors in our guts than in our brains. So in fact, when we talk about what is the true brain of the human body, is it up there in our heads or is it in our guts? And so that, you know, all of those um, colloquial expressions, right? Like it's a gut feeling. I felt it in my gut, your gut instinct, all of these things that we say all the time, that is the gut brain connection in action. And so when we know that serotonin and we know about serotonin, that's a neurotransmitter. So it's a chemical that's often secreted in the brain and a lot of the medications like SSRIs, you know, Prozac and other medications. That's a class of medications that work specifically on serotonin reuptake. We know that serotonin, there's three to five times more receptors of serotonin in our guts than in our brains. All the more reason why the psychobiome is so important and strengthening the microbiome and psychobiome can have a tremendous impact on our mood. We don't think about that usually. We just think like, you know, our gut is digestion and that's it. But our gut is involved in so many 
things. It's involved in immunity, which is really important right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really important for mood and stress, for so many factors that, are, that we don't even really recognize it for. So it is truly our second brain. You know, I realize, I realize that when I'm stressed out, I tend to look at, okay, why am I feeling this way? And a lot of times it comes down to not eating enough or not eating the right food, you know, more than anything. And it really is amazing how the two are connected because you could have a really bad day and you think it's everything else that's going on in the world. And really it's because you didn't, you didn't eat enough or you didn't eat the right thing. Yeah. And our, you know, what's so interesting is when you're feeling like you've had a bad day and you're thinking about what to eat, often we will reach for high fat, high sugar foods. Definitely. You know, it's our comfort, right? So pizza and French fries and fried chicken or whatever it is that you enjoy eating lasagna. The reason that we do that is because it is our biology, truly our biology in action. When Mm. we feel stressed, when we feel afraid or unsure or overwhelmed, our cortisol level, our stress hormone goes through the roof in our body. And our flight or fight mechanism gets activated. That's that stress response that we talked about earlier. And in our bodies, we think we go into survival mode. We think, oh, there's a danger, you know, Mm -hmm. what's going on? And our bodies, that that part of our brain that I mentioned, the limbic system, which the amygdala is a part of, that doesn't understand that, oh, there's like a, you know, a test coming up or mortgage needs to be paid or there's a a pandemic, you know. (laughs) Famine, like evolutionarily, famine is also something that caused us to be, have the same response. So our bodies start thinking, okay, this is a survival thing. What, how do we combat survival by calories? What has the most calorically dense foods? High fat, high sugar foods. So your body and biology starts priming your brain to crave high fat, high sugar foods because it is simply a matter of survival for your body we are you know highly attuned to survival and so we just start getting going into that survival mode and so we crave these foods so it's not you it's your biology you know especially during stressful times so how do we combat that that sense of emotional eating or you know eating things like that it's by managing our stress right so you know, eat some French fries when you're feeling stressed out. If you want French fries, go for it. Eat the French fry. Don't deprive yourself because it will give you that boost of serotonin that you want and that you need the comfort. But just, you know, think about portions, pair it with something a little bit healthier, like fruits and vegetables, so that over time and with practice, managing your stress through, you know, improving your sleep, exercising, meditation, spending time with loved ones. There's so many ways, therapeutic writing, a gratitude practice. There's so many ways to minimize stress. Over time, that will have an impact and then you won't emotionally eat. You know, there's so many connections, the brain, there's an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is like right up here in the front. And we've found in studies that when you exercise, so you being an Olympian, um, your prefrontal cortex is probably very thick. And having a thicker prefrontal cortex means that you are less likely to cave to urges. So when people aren't lifelong exercisers or don't really exercise much, they don't have as thick of a prefrontal cortex. So when they have a craving for, say, a chocolate cake, they may feel the urge to eat an entire chocolate cake. Whereas you know, people who are exercising on a regular basis may have a different, um, thicker prefrontal cortex and then may say, okay, I'll have some chocolate cake, but I'm okay with just a few bites and then I'm done. So it's not about weight loss or looking, you know, vanity. It's truly about health and mental health more than anything. Why exercise is so beneficial. Yes, for the body, but very much so for the mind. And it actually changes our brain. Exercise changes our brain. So many things that we do every day can help change our brain for the better. That is amazing. I mean, you don't really think about it as being really biological, like the fact that your brain could be thicker in certain areas because you work out. Uh, It just makes me think everything that we're talking about today is you have to go back to checking in with yourself. And, And we don't do that enough, right? We're distracted all the time. We don't like to sit with our thoughts. We don't like to, um, I don't know, we don't sit quiet with ourselves enough to really understand what our bodies are telling us. And so what you're saying is, yeah, if you're, if you're eating like crazy, I mean, it's not just that you're hungry and it's not, it, it, it goes back to 
okay, obviously I'm stressed. So I need to take care of that first. Um, and so you're a big advocate of meditation and I would like to be a big advocate of meditation. I want, I actually, I am, but I can't say I really practice it like I would like to. So what do you say to people who are busy, 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 you know, or just don't even know where to begin with meditation? It, it seems like something where it's like, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm going to sit down for 20 minutes in total silence and find time to do that throughout the day. So for people who just don't know where to start, where do we start? You know, I too found it very difficult to meditate initially and could barely do two minutes of a sitting meditation wow. until I just felt like I had ants in my pants and just had to like get up and move. Mm -hmm. um, it is not normal for us, especially living in the modern world to sit still. We just like feel so antsy. We need to get up. Our thoughts start racing. And often what we see is when people first start meditating, they just fall asleep. I used to do that. <laughs> because we're not used to actively relaxing. So if you right. were still go, 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 that the minute you say sit still, you know, I, I fell asleep more times than not when I was first learning to meditate because I'd never done that before. My body didn't do that. That is why initially when you first learn how to meditate, they try to teach you to not meditate lying down because if you're going to meditate lying down, you're going to fall asleep. Right. You don't know how to actively relax. It's a skill. It's a skill like riding a bike. And so typically what I suggest when people want to meditate is first, it's not for everyone. You know, there's many people who can't meditate. And for several years, I was one of them. And now I'm a proponent, but for a long time, I just couldn't. So what did I do? And I, you know, I looked at the research. So of course, because I know the science and, you know, thinking about what can I do in place of meditation, you can do movement meditation. Mm. So you say that you're not a meditator, but I would actually say that you're probably a real mindfulness expert because you are inhabiting your body fully. You're totally present in the moment. You're an Olympian. You are an elite athlete. And so by that nature, you are, you've, tuned in to your mind-body connection. You are very present in the now because you have to be. When you're an athlete, you are so, so tuned in. And so athletes are an incredible example of the mind-body connection in right. action. And they're also incredible meditators in that they practice movement meditation. So walking every day. So for those of us who aren't Olympians or aren't, or aren't elite athletes, what can we do to practice movement meditation? Go outside and take a walk. Yeah. Spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes, wear a mask. I have to say that because I'm a doctor. So you know, go outside and feel your feet on the floor, articulate as you're walking and kind of bring that sense of surface area. Focus on your breath. Take some deep breaths, you know, for people who are amputees and cannot feel their feet, right? So what do you do? How do you connect with the earth and the movement of your body as you are walking through space and time? Focus on your breath your in-breath and your out-breath as you're taking step-by-step. Step. So there's many ways to feel that sense of connection. Once you're a little bit more comfortable with that, then move into a sitting meditation practice. Don't sit and do it for 20 minutes. You'll never do it. You'll hate it. And then you'll say meditation's boring. I don't want to do it anymore. Right. You know, so typically what I, what I suggest is five minutes twice a day. And five minutes can seem like an eternity in the beginning. It did for me. I mean, I could barely do, mm -hmm. I did 90 seconds initially. And then I would like, you know, close my eyes and then open my eyes and say like, am I done yet? God, that felt like 15 minutes and it was only, you know, 70 seconds. Right. Um, takes a long time because it's training your brain and it's training ourselves. And so you have to get there slowly. You know, I often say that meditation and medication, the difference is one letter, but mm -hmm. it's a world of difference and it's very powerful stuff. So you don't want to just like sit for 20 minutes, do it for five minutes, twice a day, see if you can do it a little bit more often. And you will notice that with time, that monkey mind, that sense of inattention, that antsiness over time, it will subside. You know, there's lots of great meditation teachers. Focusing on your breath is a great technique. There's apps that you can use for guided meditation. Right. There's many ways to get there, but it's not a be all end all by any stretch. And there's many other ways like movement, you being the queen of movement <laughs> that can help us get into that meditative state. You know, I mean, I know that I make it seem like I don't meditate, but I, I, I completely agree when it comes to some of the practices that I do do is almost a form of meditation. I mean, maybe you can tell me if, if it is, but I mean, I'm a huge visualizer. I will, I will daydream out the window 
for hours at a time sometimes and think like, gosh, what have I been doing this whole time? I've been calm. I've been kind of visualizing. I guess I'm more so just my letting my brain wander a little bit, not cutting everything out, but I'm, 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 I'm also not um, thinking of what I have to do today. It's, it's not that kind of visualizing. It's just more of letting my mind wander, letting it daydream and kind of getting lost in time because of that. So would, is that, would that be a form of meditation or do you really have to quiet your thoughts down completely to truly be in that meditative state? So your practice of mind wandering is actually very therapeutic and it's something that we don't do enough of. It's mm-hmm. not truly classically meditation, but especially now when we all have our smartphones and we're constantly stimulated, that can have a real impact on our brain. It's called popcorn brain because mm. our brains are like popping with thoughts and it's overly stimulated. So what you do with the mind wandering technique, that's actually a real training technique that you can use mm. is just to let your mind wander because that takes a different kind of attention to let your mind wander and not reach for that phone and not reach for the news and feel that sense of compulsion. Or if you feel the compulsion, you just let it ride through you and you continue to mind wander. And there's a different circuitry in the brain that is utilized with mind wandering. And there's lots of benefits, lots of therapeutic benefits for that. You know, what's surprising to me is like often with athletes and you being an elite athlete, we often see that they have used lots of coping mechanisms in their life and they don't know why they're doing it. It's not that they've, you know, read some scientific paper, they just do it because they're feeling good afterwards or they start to do it. Like you, you're doing mind wandering. You don't know why you just, you enjoy it. It feels good. And then you continue, but there's actually lots of good science to back that up. And so that is a wonderful tool to daydream and to allow that sense of visualization and thoughts and ideas to just percolate in their own time and their stream of consciousness. It's very, very therapeutic and really helpful. It also is a great way to alleviate stress. And it's something that we don't do enough, you know, that art of pondering. We used to all ponder so much, um, come up with ideas for things, allow ourselves to be bored. That's where a lot of creativity is built. So you are a highly creative person. And I bet it's um, during those periods of mind wandering is like, you might get ideas or, you know, things come together. The neurons start firing in a certain way. Those are um, brain cells and you start coming up with different concepts. You may be aware of it. You may not be aware of it, but you're giving your brain a little rest and space. And that's really key. and so, so therapeutic. Exactly. And that's something that I talk about quite a bit because I feel my most creative when I daydream and you have to be able to put your phone down, not be distracted and really just allow your brain to wander. And it's almost like a creative download tons of ideas start to come in. It might not happen right away. You're kind of staring at the window, not sure what you're looking at, but before you know it, all of a sudden things start clicking. It's almost like that's when, I feel like that's when the problem solving part of our brains start working without actively trying to solve a problem. It's just things are connecting and it's solving problems for you. Yeah. See, you have all the science down, like you're living the science. I can give you the names of things. Like we talked about cognitive reframing. You're like, I do that. Mind wandering. You're like, I do that. And what you're doing now is called consolidation. So often, you know, when we're sitting down and toiling with an idea or a difficult concept and we're not getting it, one great strategy to use is what you just said, which is like, let it go do something else, let your mind wander. And often you'll have that aha moment. That is why, you know, the night before you might be working on something, you go to sleep, you haven't quite figured it out. You're in the shower and you have mm. that aha moment. So yes. when people have their aha moment in the shower. The shower is one of the few places that we in modern life allow ourselves to like wander and sit there and think we should be doing more of that. We should allow right. ourselves to have more time to wander because that is when consolidation happens. And what consolidation is in the brain is that we have certain and sleep also helps with consolidation. And what happens is we have new information and ideas in the brain at all times. But what, how does that information really get cemented into the brain, to our brain and become knowledge? Mm-hmm. That is called consolidation. So our brains lay down some tracks, like new learning tracks in the brain. And then we either sleep or we wander, or we just let it go. And over time, it kind of crystallizes and cements in the brain and becomes knowledge rather than just like information floating around. 
And so you're doing all of these things and you don't even know that you're doing things scientifically, but, you know, but because you're so attuned to your body and your mind, because as an athlete you are, and I think being the combination of being an athlete and a very self-aware person Mm -hmm. who's looking to always better themselves, like you have like the one, two punch, like it's truly just remarkable. Well, gosh, well, first of all, I'm happy to know that um, there's something called movement meditation because I realize I do do that. I mean, I will get on the floor every night. I turn on music and I stretch. I kind of start by stretching, but then I just kind of find myself in this space, you know, just in this very, very relaxed, comfortable space. I'm not thinking of what I have to do, but it has to do with movement. That definitely triggers it. Even if I'm not, you know, fully working out, it's just getting on the floor, moving around, stretching. And it, it, it puts my mind in a different state for sure. And so I'm happy to know that possibly that's meditation. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you're linking breath with movement, right? You know, like what is meditation ultimately and mind wandering and all these wonderful things that you're doing. It's like, we're letting ourselves settle into ourselves. And we're, when you're mind wandering, you probably start noticing. And if you haven't noticed, maybe you will, since we talked about it, you'll start noticing that maybe your breath becomes slower it mm-hmm. might become deeper and you'll just start regulating and kind of like your, your body starts relaxing and chilling out. Same thing right. when you're stretching for bed, you're stretching, you might be breathing, or maybe mm-hmm. you were holding your breath earlier. Right. And then you start saying you're stretching and you're maybe breathing differently. And that meditation is nothing more than just paying attention to your breath. It's a very fancy way to say that, but that is what it is. You know, you're sitting still, you're monitoring your in-breath and your out-breath. And the reason we use our breath is because it's always changing and it's always in the now. So the breath from last, you know, last breath is no longer here. The next breath hasn't come yet. So it keeps us very grounded in the present. But so does movement. That's why walking, you know, one step and taking another step can do that. Your yoga stretches or just stretches Mm -hmm. before bed can do that. There's so many ways to stay grounded and connected to the now, focus on our breath. And that in turn, you know, it feels good for you, but it actually has a real biological basis. It gets us out of our fight or flight mechanism, that stress response, the sympathetic nervous system, which is way, and it gets us into the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest part of our nervous system, the one that helps us, you know, be calm, level-headed, making decisions, not out of stress or fear, but out of love and abundance and compassion. So would you say then meditation is a huge tool for resilience? I would say meditation is a tool for resilience, but it doesn't have to be the tool. Okay. There are so many other things and people who don't meditate, you know, if you're a regular meditator, mm-hmm. then great Keep going. But if you're not a regular meditator, I think, you know, our society has made us feel bad if we can't meditate. Like right. we're saying, you know, I want to, and I can't, it's okay. It's not for everyone. Um, just like elite athleticism isn't for everyone either. And that's okay too. You know, we right. do what we can. So some people you know, there's also very other, there's um, some very old fashioned ways um, that we could be in the meditative state through, for example, knitting, needlepoint, crafting, mindless, repetitive tasks. They're called cleaning. You can be scrubbing the floors and in a meditative state. You know, um, when you do monk training, I am not a monk and I have (laughs) never trained to be a monk, but I've read a lot about how monks train and I've visited various parts of the Himalayas to to watch this in action. And you'll see that, like, you know, when monks are training, they're not meditating. They're cleaning the courtyard. They're sweeping. They're doing the laundry. They're hanging the clothes. They're doing very mundane, repetitive tasks as a way to bring a sense of mindfulness to the task. So when you're doing the dishes, you focus on doing the dishes. Feel the water on your hands. Feel, you know, listen to the sounds. The, feel the sponge and the dish and all of that, the sensory experience. When you're sweeping the floor, sweep the floor. When right. you're vacuuming, vacuuming. So there's many ways to kind of create a meditative experience. Knitting is a great tool. It totally gets us into that mind wandering space because you're mm-hmm. knitting. It's a repetitive, It's a, we call it a mindless repetitive task. It's something that we're just doing again and again. 
and it relaxes us because that um, by, by doing something on a repetitive basis, it really makes us feel relaxed. There's probably so many things that you do um, that would be very difficult for me or others who aren't trained as an athlete. But for you, you're like, yeah, it's just something that I'm doing. And it right. gets you into a zone. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even that other night, so this flower pot behind me, I didn't like the color of it. And so I decided to paint it. And I used to paint, I used to be a painter. Um, And well, I say I used to be a painter, but I painted like all the time. And I haven't painted for years. I just haven't really had the space and haven't really had the time. It felt so good to paint this pot. I was telling my husband, I'm like, I I don't care what I paint. I feel like I need to paint something every night. It just put me in the best state of mind. And it must have been just that relaxing, repetitive. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't trying to make anything really pretty. I was actually literally painting the same color over and over on the pot. But it's just nice to know that these things that we're doing can be considered meditation or a form of meditation. But also you've given us a lot of ideas on how to get into that state that you don't have to just sit down with your eyes closed for 20 minutes. That like you said, it's cleaning the floor, it's washing the dishes, it's being wherever you're at completely present. And And I think, you know, what's so interesting is like, there's no magic bullet. So like meditation might be something that no, that some people just cannot do never, ever. And that's okay. They're, they're not shortchanging themselves by not learning how to meditate because maybe there'll be some, there'll be people who really just want to walk. And when they're walking mm-hmm. outside, they'll be really, con- you know, conscious of every step, articulating their feet on the floor, focusing on their breath. That's also, that's an equally valid way to meditate. Right. You know, it's like any way that you can, when you were painting your, your flower pot, your, mm-hmm. your plant pot, um, you got into this state of flow. Mm -hmm. you lost track of time and you probably do that a lot you do that with mind wandering you do that lots of times throughout the day probably and that's why you're so cognitively and psychologically healthy getting into the state of flow has tremendous benefits for our mental health our resilience our mood and our stress because it is a true moment of being completely unaware of time and what we call the timelessness of the present moment in meditation circles and it's a form of meditation because you're getting into a headspace where you are truly in the here and now. But you don't have to meditate to feel that sense of flow or effortlessness. Mm-hmm. You can do lots of things, you know, like painting is a wonderful way to get into the state of flow. And there's lots yeah. of, um, you know, nice therapeutic techniques that people have started using to doodle or draw or right. paint in a way to tap into that. I I could talk about flow state all day because it's, I mean, as an athlete, that's what you, you chase you. It's kind of elusive. It's like, you're trying to figure out how did you get there? Um, But then, yeah, it it pops up in different ways. It, like you said, painting or in the shower, it's like, that's when everything kind of starts to flow and come together, but you're really relaxed and you're not trying, you're not searching. You're just completely in the moment. And so I, um, I love that. I love that we've covered all of just all of these different topics on here today. It's, it's all so important. So let's say, cause I noticed this today with myself, I was doing a virtual uh, speech. I was getting ready to do a speech and my computer stopped working right. You know, my camera start, stopped working right. Things just weren't connecting. And so then there's this moment of, panic and stress. And I'm pretty proud of myself because I feel like with everything I've gone through in my life, I now am at a place where nothing is that big of a deal. I'm like, eh, if I'm five minutes late so I can figure this out, I'm not going to stress myself out about it. You know, in the past, I would have been like, oh my gosh, everything has to be perfect. Everything has, like, I have to go on right now. People are waiting for me. And now I do feel a sense of calm at times when things could be stressful because I just think because I've gone through so much, I, I've gotten to a point of like, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it's not, if it's, you know, my life's not on the line here everybody's, everybody's going to be fine. But I will say though, I did still have like a physical reaction where I'm like, like, Oh God, okay. Things aren't working out. And so if we find ourselves in a moment of 
acute stress, we spill our coffee while we're driving or something happens or something doesn't, you know, work out right in that moment. And it's a time when you feel really stressed and you can feel your body you can feel your heart rate. You're not breathing as good. What can we do right then to, to just get ourselves to a place of, of being grounded? So we, so we can move forward and, you know, because when you're in stress, then everything goes wrong, right? All of a sudden you can't figure out how to plug your computer in. <laughs> So how do we get to a place of calm when we're in the peak of acute stress? So there's two techniques and I love that question. And so there's two ways. So the first is to ground yourself. So literally feel your feet on the floor, feel your body sitting in the chair, you know, just get aware of your posture and ground yourself. Next, take a deep breath, focus on your breath. Chances are you're holding your breath during that moment because you're just in panic mode. So stop, take a deep breath, and then just bring awareness to that moment, just be. Mm. And so, you know, think about your posture, think about your feet on the floor, or your, you know, your bum in the chair, however you're Mm. sitting, and then just take a deep breath and just be. And that could, it's called a mindful pause. And that can be a tremendous reset. And when you start doing that more often, you know, stop, breathe and be just kind of taking that moment before the calamity and before responding and before, you know, it, it takes seconds, not even seconds, milliseconds to get into that headspace. But then the cascading impact of that is huge because you've immediately instantaneously decreased your cortisol level by doing that and prevented it from escalating. You are creating a buffer to your emotional way you're regulating. You know, the reason meditation is so helpful is because it helps with emotional regulation because it changes parts of our brain that we're, so we don't, you know, snap and yell or snap and curse or snap and, you know, have that like gut reaction. Um, So, but you can do this in other ways. So when you're having that moment, like that panic moment in the morning, that has happened to me, you know, probably happened once or twice today in a different, you know, in a different capacity. So I just stop just take a deep breath because the breath is always the anchoring moment and then allowing those emotions, you know, it's not suddenly that you're going to say like, Oh, I feel great. Everything's great. Like my computer doesn't work. My camera doesn't work. No problem. You're not going to feel that way, but you will be better able to cope and address and react to the situation in a much more productive way that afterwards, you know, if you didn't do that kind of reset, If you didn't do that, then you would have the cascading effect. So let's say for you, you turned on the camera, the camera worked again, you figured it out, but you hadn't done the reset, then chances are you would be like on the Zoom or, or, and your heart would be racing. Right. You like, you know, you, you would be out of sorts. You would be there, but not fully present. And so when you do this reset of just like focusing on your posture and your body, taking a deep breath and being, you're more likely to then recalibrate quicker address whatever issue is going on in the moment. And then afterwards, when the issue resolves that the, the impact, so you're not going to have such a long, steady stream of all of those hormones and stuff in your body, you'll be able to calm down a little bit sooner to then move on with the next thing at hand, you know, because things are always happening. And life moves so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, that's a perfect way to end this episode, because that's a perfect way to be able to bounce forward is to be mindful, take that time for yourself, check in with yourself so that you can recalibrate, step forward and be your best self. Oftentimes we don't do that. Just like you said, like you might fix it, but then you're still off. So I love that. It's so important to just go back, get yourself in a good state of mind and being, and then step forward and you'll get so much further, quicker. And it takes seconds. I mean, it might right. take not even one second to do that. You know, if you right. it might take one or two seconds because you might have to tell yourself, stop, breathe, be. But over time, if you do that, I love again, that. Again, it'll stop, just be- breathe, be. That right there, that's, that's a mantra that we can all take with us. Absolutely. I use it every day, all the time. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it on my window right here. You know, I, I do have a mantra, which is uh, be here now, which a lot of people, I've heard a lot of other people use that mantra, but it works for me so well. And you can because, use it. And you can yeah, use it now. Just, you can be, so you're just aware of the body. Yeah. Here, you take a deep breath 
And now you're aware of the situation. So instead of just saying that mantra, which you use anyway, and has really good association for you, you know, put together that mind-body connection piece. action. Attention to your body, bring attention to your breath, bring attention to what's going on in your mind. And those are three words. So it works really well. It's, it's an easy mantra to incorporate this behavior change. I love that. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just so honored that you're here with us today and, and you've given, I, this is what I love. Okay. I love the science and the research and the understanding behind things, not just talking about what we should do because it feels good, but really understanding why we should do this. That's what, for me, that's what makes things click. So having you on here today has um, just been fantastic. And where can our audience find you? So people can find me on social media at Dr. Aditi Narukar. I also can be found on my website, which is draditi.com. And DM me and ask me any questions that you may have. I'm very responsive. I um, try to answer every single DM. I know it's sometimes overwhelming. You do the same, Amy. You are such a hero and inspiration to me and to so many others. You're such a force of good in the world. I'm like totally in awe and a forever fan of you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. And you're just, you're so amazing. You know, also I want everybody to know too, if you're on Clubhouse, I mean, Dr. Aditi is on Clubhouse a lot, but that you're amazing. You speak on so many different topics and you have so much to share, so much knowledge to share. So I thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you. It's a mutual admiration society going on here with you. And yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in to Bouncing Forward. My mission is to show that no matter what our circumstances, if you want something bad enough, and if you feel it in your heart and your soul, that the possibilities of what we can achieve are endless. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode, and please leave a review to help me help more people bounce forward. I want to leave you with this one question. If your life was a book and you were the author, how would you want your story to go? From this podcast, I hope you walk away seeing that although we can't control the things that happen to us, we can always control the way we react to them. We determine where our story goes from here. It's not about bouncing back to who we once were. It's about bouncing forward and becoming all that we could be.